Welcome to another week of our four-and-a-half-year verse-by-verse journey through all of God's inspired Word. I invite you to join me in the letter of Colossians today. We've spent the last several weeks looking at the little letter of Paul to Philemon, and then the more generic but very deep letter uh, of the Ephesians. And we have suggested to you very strongly that the Philemon letter is the reason why these other letters are written. Because Paul is sending back Onesimus, the runaway but now converted and repentant slave of Philemon, a Christian man in the church at Colossae. And so Paul writes the little letter to encourage Philemon to welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. Then Paul writes a letter generically to all of Asia. It starts at Ephesus and I believe is intended to be a circular letter following the Roman road system uh, clockwise Uh, around the province of Asia, if you think about the seven churches of Asia in their order, that's the direction this thing is going. And it finishes at Laodicea. And the reason I emphasize that is because Laodicea is only a dozen miles from Colossae. And Paul tells the Colossians to expect and read a letter from the direction of Laodicea, which I believe is the Ephesian letter. And so Paul is writing to the Colossians because he plans, hopefully, to be released from his detention soon, that his imperial review will be over, and he's going to come and check on them, see how they're doing. He even tells Philemon in that little letter, have a room ready for me. So these three letters, Philemon, Ephesus, or Ephesians, and Colossae, are all written within a matter of hours of each other, probably a couple of days at the most. And that really shows up, as you will see, between the twin letters of Ephesians and Colossians. And so I will be pointing back to the Ephesian letter quite often as the parallel to what Paul is writing to the Christians at Colossae. With no more delay, let's dive into the text itself. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 are the greeting section of this letter, and it's very similar to all of Paul's writings, but is particularly parallel to the Colossians one. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he emphasizes this idea, I am not in this job, in this position, because I campaigned for it or because I pushed my way into it. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles because he was divinely tapped for that position. He was selected by Jesus himself, and that should add great power to what he has to say in his letters. And Timothy, our brother. Timothy is counted as the partner of Paul 
in the writing of several of these letters. Uh, it may be that Paul is trying to keep his name forefront, keep his mind or keep his image in the minds of the authors because Timothy is going to be the next leader uh, of these different churches. He's going to be coming into uh, prominence once Paul is off the scene. Verse number two, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, and that's very similar to the Ephesian letter, which says to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So right off the bat, we see parallels. And then the thing that is common to all of Paul's letters, and that's the double greeting. It's the I hope you're doing well part of a letter. Grace to you, that's the Greek style, uh, and peace from God, our Father, that's the Jewish style of greeting. But it's more intense, it's deeper, because these are also words with connection to the atonement of Jesus Christ. Grace is unmerited favor, which was provided by Jesus' death and resurrection, and peace is the repair of relationship, which was also accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So those are special words to those of us who are Christians. Verse number three. The next part of most letters of Paul uh, tend to be the I'm thankful for you guys, and I'm praying for you guys. So that's what we see. Verse number three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So we're thankful for you, and we tell God that when we pray for you. Verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, it would appear that the Apostle Paul has not yet been to Colossae. It would seem that while Paul was working at Ephesus during his third missionary journey, that he sent out evangelists or received students from various churches around Asia and close by, uh, and trained them, and then sent them back to those places. And so it seems as if uh, he was carrying on what we would call today a, a Bible college or an evangelistic school. And there was a man from Colossae uh, that we'll be seeing his name mentioned here in just a little bit, who took the gospel from the Apostle Paul to Colossae and uh, was... Uh, instrumental in getting the church established there. And so Paul is saying, I've been hearing good things about your faith, how you turn to God, and how you guys love all those that are your fellow uh, believers. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Everywhere you see the word hope, you should instantly think second coming of Jesus, establishment of eternity, resurrection of the saints, transformation of the living, the beginning of the millennial reign, the beginning of the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. That's all connected with the hope of the saints. 
And uh, that is a driving force in Christians to live good lives. Um, Of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. So the hope of salvation fully, not just simply being saved in our soul, but being resurrected in our permanent bodies, that's the hope. That's part of the gospel. When we preach and teach the gospel, that's one of the components. And Paul says, that came to you, and in fact, it's going out all over the place to the whole world, and it's bearing fruit. It's growing. Uh, This letter is being written probably right around the early part of 63. And so, based on that, the church has been around about 30 years. And it is still moving forward with great force and growth. And so, Paul says, that's still happening. Verse uh, 6 continues, As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So this is where we find out that they were ministered to by a man named Epaphras. And Paul considers him a partner in the gospel. Uh, The preaching and the teaching of the death and resurrection, the ascension, and the anticipated return of Jesus. All of that is part of the gospel story, and it leads to the grace of the hearers who respond to it with faith. And so Paul is very complimentary of Epaphras. He says, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the Apostle Paul is at Rome as he's writing this. He's been detained in Rome awaiting his imperial review for at least two full years. He's anticipating being released soon, but he is writing this letter saying, Epaphras is here with me right now. You learned the gospel from him back a few years ago, and he is now here serving that gospel by being a minister of Jesus Christ to me helping me. Uh, So what is he doing? He's perhaps doing running of errands around uh, the uh, city of Rome on behalf of the Apostle Paul. Maybe he's helping in uh, what's effectively a Bible training school at uh, that private residence in Rome. Uh, Certainly Epaphras is quite competent in preaching and teaching, and may be included in uh, the teaching and training of anyone and everyone that's coming to the Apostle Paul during this time period. Uh, And so he says, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's made known to us your love in the Spirit. So you guys love the body of Christ. You love each other. You love uh, not just the saints, but the sinners who need to become saints. So love is something 
Paul compliments them for. Verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, heard what? Heard about their love. Heard about their faithfulness. Heard about their embracing the gospel under the teaching and training of Paphras. All of that. So, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be may be fooled, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and knowledge. So he wants them to have a deeper understanding of the gospel, a deeper understanding of God's will that's attached to that gospel, a deeper understanding of God's wisdom and how God wants to redeem anyone and everyone that will embrace the name of Jesus Christ, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their economic stature, regardless of their educational situation, regardless of their gender. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is, do you or do you not have a relationship with God the Father through God the Son? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, Paul has a tendency to have very long sentences. Uh, No doubt if he went to college uh, nowadays, he would probably be popped for having run on sentences. But that was not a problem in the writing of that period. Uh, so he he has talked about this idea of walking before. It's an idea of living. It's lifestyle. But he wants the Colossians, and by extension, all of us who are Christians, to have a lifestyle that makes God pleased, that makes God happy. And we know that the lifestyle that makes God happy is a lifestyle that's bound up in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I remind you again, one of the memory assignments I keep giving you, uh, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body, I live for the one who loved me, and gave himself up for me. So that is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, being pleasing to him. And the bearing fruit uh, is also attached to the book of Galatians because we have the fruit of the Spirit, which is a result of walking according to the Lord's will. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the thing that Paul is urging in this letter and other letters that we Christians should be known for. And then he prays, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So he prays that all of us Christians will let God strengthen us 
and give us this fruit of the Spirit, which includes endurance and patience and joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Um, It is a sin not to be thankful to God. Romans chapter 1, Paul describes that as the problem. And uh, when we give thanks, we give thanks because he put us on the list of heirs. Uh, When he writes this letter, he knows that a large portion of the church, just because of world population ratios, a large portion of the church are not ethnic Israelis who were already long ago uh, anticipating the idea of inheriting the new heaven and new earth as part of their, their resurrection. So the Gentiles are now being told, hey, in Jesus Christ, you Gentiles too have been qualified to inherit the new heaven and the new earth, to be part of the family of light, the dedicated people of God. And speaking of light, he says, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So this world is dark, metaphorically speaking. It is dark with sin. It is dark with bad choices. It is dark with rebellion. This is the domain of darkness. But because of faith being placed in the light of the world, in Jesus himself, we are moved from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of light. We quit being the children of dark, darkness and become the children of light instead. And this is a great transfer. Verse 14, in whom, that is, in Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are what separated us from God. Again, go back to the book of Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And let's stress this very strongly. We are not in trouble because of what Adam and Eve did. We are, but we are not condemned because of their choice. We sinned. We're the ones who sinned and fell short of God's glory. We're the problem. And so in Jesus Christ, we get redeemed as individuals. We are bought back out of darkness, out of slavery to sin. And we have our sins wiped away, blotted off the record. And so that's all because of Jesus. And so this whole first section in the book of Colossians, just like the first big section in the book of Ephesians is about Jesus, how central he is to our salvation. Verse 15, you got to love this next section in Colossians. He, meaning Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God. Now, that's, that's a play on words there. Uh, God cannot be seen by sinners. Uh, God has testified in the past, no human can see me and live. That's why he tells Moses that he can't see uh, God in his reality. He has to see just kind of the afterglow. Uh, So because of our sin, we can't see God. So Jesus came to planet Earth and took on human form and demonstrated God to us in that way. And that's the prologue to the book of John, isn't it? Uh, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has demonstrated him to us. So we see the Father in the Son. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that does not give the idea that he is uh, the first of God's creation, which some um, heresies have suggested. Uh, The firstborn here is used as a title of rank. He is the highest ranking personage in all of creation. And we've seen that other places. Uh, All things came into existence through him and not... Not one thing which now exists came into existence except by him. So he is the ranking member of humanity because he took on human form. Verse 16, for by him or through him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So we're talking about the physical world and the spiritual world, the place where humans live and the place where the angelic creatures live. By him, all of this was created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus was there with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1.1. He was the Word of God. Remember, God spoke, and the world came into existence. So Jesus was the driving force there in the creation event. And because of that, verse number 17 He is before all things, so he predates everything because he's from eternity past. And in him, all things hold together. Now, that has some interesting um, impact upon our understanding of physics. Physics tries to describe how uh, the components of matter stay together, even though they have all sorts of opposing forces that should kind of push them apart. Well, ultimately, it is the ingenuity of design by Jesus Christ that holds all things together. And one of these days, he's going to let that go 
and it will dissolve. It is interesting to me that the word in Greek for destroy or to become unusable is uh, the word for letting go. So one of these days, Jesus will just let it all go, and it will disassemble. It'll just fly apart. Uh, Peter describes this as uh, the elements dissolving in a fervent heat and with a great noise. Uh, But then almost instantaneously, it would appear, the new heaven and new earth will come into existence. And there will be no unrighteousness in that one. And so Jesus is the beginning of creation. He is the sustainer of creation. And he will be involved in the destruction of this fallen creation and the recreation of a new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells. But... The more pressing thing that we Christians need to understand starts in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is in charge of his own body, the church. And we need to get on board with that. He is the beginning, uh, and the word for beginning here can mean the beginning point. So he's the creator again. But it can also have the sense of he's in charge. He is the ultimate authority because he's always been here. So he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, there's been other people resurrected from the dead in the Old Testament, but they all died. They all died again. And so Jesus is the very first one human being to resurrect permanently. So that makes him the firstborn from the dead. And Paul says that in everything he might be preeminent. So he is the climax. He is the epitome of everything. He's the creator. He is the destroyer. He is the recreator. He is the resurrected one. He is everything. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now this gets into some very deep theology. The oneness of God. There is only one God. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all distinct inside that oneness of God. We don't understand it. It gives us a headache to try to even uh, wrap our minds around it. But we have to verbalize it that that's the case. But Jesus was God in the flesh. 